Are you concerned about hitting your revenue targets this month, quarter, or year? Your answer is Value Prime Solutions, a sales training and marketing optimization company leveraging the value selling framework. Visit www.valueprimesolutions.com and start accelerating your results. You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. Today, we're jumping into how to effectively align sales and marketing, matching demand generation to sales capacity, and challenges related to demand generation planning and goal setting. To help us unravel the mystery around demand generation, we're lucky to have with us Tim Matthews. He's VP of Marketing for security software company Impervo, which is located in Redwood City, California. Tim has run marketing in Silicon Valley since the Netscape Navigator days. For our younger listeners, that was one of the original web browsers. (laughs) He's also a syndicated blogger and author of The Professional Marketer. So Tim, thank you very much for taking the time today and welcome to the show. Great to be here. Excellent. So before we jump in, we like to ask uh, our guests kind of a question to upload some value up front and and it's pretty uh hopefully provides insight into you as a a person in your experience but when you look back over your career uh can you tell us about a defining moment or an event that provided insights you continue to go back to and leverage today or that perhaps changed the trajectory of or perspective on your career so i started my career as an se supporting a sales team uh, and then i became briefly a salesperson And I think my epiphany came when I realized that I was what I call the victim of bad marketing. (laughs) So when you're when you're out there in the field, especially when you're rushing to a meeting and you pull out, you know, whatever it is, the data sheet or I think in this case it was a PowerPoint presentation and you see how epically bad it is (laughs) and you think, what am I going to do? And that's when I realized that, um, you know, I could probably do it better. And and that was, I think, the beginning of my movement toward marketing as opposed to, to working in sales. I understand exactly what you're talking about. I spent 13 years in marketing and my bar when I moved into sales was if I can't, if I look at something and say, I could do this better, then it doesn't, you know, it doesn't meet the bar for what I want to put in front of a customer. That's right. That's right. Excellent. So for our listeners, let's give them a little more context around Imperva and and your role there. Right. So Imperva, as you said, is a security software company. We're a public company, uh, about $300 million in revenue, a thousand employees, and I run global marketing, so I have all aspects of marketing, so product marketing, field marketing, demand generation, corporate marketing, you know, all the components. I have a team of about 30, I think it's 32 people now. And my role is, as you'd expect, a, a head of marketing at a you know, large company like ours, awareness, demand generation, uh, enabling the field, uh, that kind of thing. Excellent. All right. And so I would be remiss if we didn't mention the book, The Professional Marketer. I'm, I'm curious, most sales and marketing execs, I don't have a lot of spare time to read books, let alone write them. So I'm kind of curious what the inspiration was for the book and how did you find time to get it done? Yeah. So sometimes people call these things passion projects. <laughs> passion, projects yeah. passion, passion maybe is how I initially started out, maybe starry-eyed. Uh, it became, honestly, uh, my grind. <laughs> it took me about two years to write uh, nights and weekends. But the reason I wrote the book is because I couldn't find it. I was trying to find a primer on marketing because having been in marketing for so many years, I would see people who just, 
though they were in marketing, didn't have a broad awareness of all the aspects of marketing. For example, people in product marketing had never uh, done a marketing budget before. You know, people in demand generation had no idea how to write a press release. So there were all these marketing fundamentals. And while there are great blogs out there today, and there's more content than there's ever been for marketers, there was no handbook that I could hand to someone to say, keep this on your desk, and when there's something you don't know, take a look in the book and you'll figure out how to write a launch plan or a messaging platform, whatever it happened to be. And so I couldn't buy the book, so I decided to write it and it took me a long time to get it out. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I, I'm always amazed at people that when they tackle their first book, they, they come back and they say, man, that was, I thought it was going to be a little bit easier than that, right? But, <laughs> but in order to do it right and provide the value, it takes it takes a lot of work. So It, cer- it certainly does, and they say, like I read somewhere along the way that books are never finished, they're abandoned. <laughs> that's that's kind of how I felt at the end. I just got it out the door uh, after two years. Yeah, you get to a point where, I mean, it's it's your baby, right? I mean, there's so much of you in it. But I bet now if you go back and look at it, you're like, man, I wish I'd written that differently or I'd included that. <laughs> I know. I I sort of, uh, if, you, if you pick up the book, you'll see I wrote an afterword essentially giving me immunity from changes in marketing. <laughs> I knew things were going to change and I wrote that in the afterward, but yeah, there's stuff now that I think, ah, oh, if I just put that in or some, a lot of the fundamentals haven't changed, but some of the technologies, many of the technologies have changed. And that's, that's the area of the book. I think probably it's going to seem perhaps the most dated, even after only three years. Yeah. Gotcha. So one of the things that we talked about as we were prepping for this was, you know, aligning sales and marketing, right? This is something that a lot of our clients struggle with uh, organizations as a whole. When I was running sales team, it was always a nightmare. You've been in software sales and marketing for, you know, a very long time. And, uh, take that with a grain of salt. I make that as a compliment. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> and, and I'm curious how you've addressed this over the years, you know, what's worked best and, and what would you advise people to avoid? Right. So first of all, because I worked in sales, I have credibility with salespeople. And not everyone has that, but right. for me, that's worked really well. Because I, like I said earlier, I know what it's like to be yelled at by a client or to show up you know, with poor preparation, how hard it is to close that pressure, which um, you know, I'm actually not built, honestly, to be a salesperson, but that some people thrive on it. So that's number one. Second thing is uh, I would recommend people speak in dollars, not in leads. So, of course, we're going to talk about the funnel in a bit, and I will use the word lead and probably MQ on others. But when you're speaking to a sales leader in particular, what they care about is how many dollars are in my pipe. And so that's a really good way to align, because if you speak dollars to them, you're speaking their language. And it sounds like a really obvious thing, but I always hear marketers or overhear marketers talking to salespeople and talking about MQLs, QSLs, things like that, which they understand, but they don't. They don't feel it, right? but they feel money, right? That's how they do it. Right? <laughs> they do understand money. <laughs> yeah, and then the last thing, and uh, I do this on the phone, and a friend of mine recently told me I should be spending more time actually going to physically visit salespeople, but keep in touch. You know, I, at the recommendation of our CEO here, uh, speak to all of our regional sales leaders at least once a quarter, if not twice, just to check in, ask them how it's going, You know, what do they need, and I know some heads of marketing shy away from this because they're afraid of picking up action items. Right. I get that. But I think if you keep in touch on a regular basis, you often get ideas and you can prioritize the things that, that come back to you from sales. So I, that's, again, a very obvious thing, which is frequently ignored. Just pick up the phone and give them a call and see, what, see how they're doing. Yeah, it takes a level of consistency right, and awareness. Yeah, yeah I, do it, I do it, like I said, at least once a quarter and I make a, a point of it. Just so I know that I'm at least, you know, no one can ever say I'm not reaching out 
and trying to understand how it's going. And, and one more thing I'll add is quite often things are different in different regions. Again, obvious to say, but certain programs work in one area and not in another, and you, you find out a lot when you just pick up the phone and talk to a sales leader. Excellent, excellent. So you, you also recently wrote about matching sales capacity with demand generation. Why that topic? <laughs> because I've been bitten by it. <laughs> That's usually the inspiration for my blog posts. Yeah, we had, we had a couple issues, and I think I wrote it just after we had done our annual funnel and we ran into a couple things. So maybe I can touch on the three things that tripped us up. Uh, um, the first thing is, yes, the first thing is when we built, we were building out our funnel for the year. Uh, one of my team was using our annual revenue number as the target. And that sounds like it makes sense. And I just mentioned that you should talk money. So what's wrong with that? Well, the problem is that you, you don't use the annual revenue number when you build your funnel. You use the quota number because the quota number is higher than the annual revenue number. And if you use the annual revenue number, you're going to be using a smaller number and giving fewer leads than your sales team needs. Right. So the first mistake I saw was people not using the quota number, which depending on how conservative your head of sales is, could be <laughs> 10 or 20% higher than your annual revenue number. So that was the first thing we saw. And again, sounds obvious to say it, but a lot of people use the revenue number. And a lot of CMOs don't get called on that even by their executives. So use the quota number, number one. And by the way, that can take a little bit of work to get it. Sales isn't necessarily, you know, flaunting that number. Or <laughs> around. You've got to, you've got to find it. You got to ask your. In my case, I had to ask our sales operations team to send me the quota. Second thing is, think of your funnel on a per rep level. So why is this important? You may find that you're killing it overall. You're 120% of your quota for pipeline added or MQLs, however you happen to measure it. But maybe all those leads are in North America and your guys in Europe are starving. So what you need to do is figure out how many leads each rep needs and then track that in the region so that you're making sure that you're not unevenly distributing your leads. And especially for a U.S. software company, it's very easy to do really well in the U.S. and not do well in, you know, Bratislava or, you know, wherever. <laughs> That's kind of, I, I shouldn't be flip about it. You may find that you're really weak in France or the UK, which right. are major territories. And the last thing, and, and this, this one tripped us up this year, you've got to watch out for a sudden upswing in sales capacity. So in our case, we had a sales team that was doing really well. And like a lot of sales leaders, they decided to add more capacity to, to grow. It sounds like a good idea. It is a good idea. The problem is that if you add sales capacity faster than demand capacity or demand generation, what's going to happen? You're going to have more reps and the same number of leads. That means that every rep, going back to our per rep model, gets fewer leads. That's not a good thing because then everybody gets pissed off. <laughs> Your existing reps get fewer leads and they're mad and you new reps who left maybe a good job somewhere else for the promise of your great company now get fewer leads than they're used to or expecting. And so the, the trick is to talk to your sales leaders. And honestly, in our case, we had a transition, which I think cut our communication lines a little bit. And, you know, it's my bad, but we are now catching up to be able to fill the funnel for all those reps. So be very careful about that and try and talk to your sales leader and anticipate these influxes of new reps or what I would prefer to do, it wasn't under my control this year, is ask the sales leader to phase in the new reps 
right? Phase them in to hopefully align with your growth in leads. That's a dynamic situation, right? Because not only will will the leads for rep change, but your quota numbers would change. I would think is they're mm-hmm. bringing on new reps, right? The the revenue exec, the sales exec is going to want you know dollars generated by those guys. Yeah. Uh, so you've got you know three areas, you know, reps, the actual planning of it, which has to remain a little bit you know flexible and dynamic uh, in terms of making sure you're. You, you know, you're keeping them fat. Yeah. So again, again, coming back to the topic of our discussion today, that alignment doesn't just mean that you like each other and you know you're good. For, you're good for the year. You've got to keep in touch as these various things change throughout the year. Excellent. Excellent. So demand generation, obviously a topic of passion, as, as you said, probably because it's, it's been top of mind. But I'm curious when you look at the, the technology landscape, right, and the things that have changed, what, what are the recent technologies or trends that you're excited about or, or have implemented at Imperva? Yeah, we, I jokingly say that people like me are you know, supporting Silicon Valley's growth by buying so much MarTech software <laughs> because there's been an explosion uh, in the last five years. There's some crazy number of MarTech products available, but there are two in particular that I'll talk about that I think are pretty cool. And I do tend to geek out on some of this stuff because it's pretty pretty neat. The first one I've been using for a while is called Hotjar, so H-O-T-J-A-R. And Hotjar is a great product that allows you to watch the behavior of people on your website. So it has what you'd expect. It has heat maps. It has scroll maps. But it allows you also to see where they're going on the site, what buttons they're clicking. You can actually record the sessions of people on your site. I'll give you an example of why that's useful. So we were watching some recordings of visitors from China, and you can tell what device they're using and where they're coming from. And these people were all over the page. I couldn't figure out. Their mouse literally was moving left, right, up, down, Uh scrolling. I couldn't figure out what they were doing. It turns out that they were cutting and pasting the words on the site and pasting them into, in in a different tab that we couldn't see in the recording, pasting them into Google Translate, Uh trying to figure out what the page said. And they're going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And so the obvious realization out of that was we needed to create a multilingual form because we had so many visitors from China and a few other countries. And so, again, if we hadn't had the recording, we probably wouldn't have figured that one out. And so it's a really neat tool that allows you to do what I just mentioned. You can also put quick little surveys on your page. Did you find what you wanted? What could we add to the page? And you get back these little nuggets of insight that are pretty cool. So that's Hotjar. Um, and that's that's a tool you could use forever and ever to keep optimizing your site. A technology that we're looking into that we probably will implement this year uh, that I just discovered, uh, it's called pre-targeting advertising. So I think everyone probably knows retargeting. Those are the ads that follow you around yep. after you've been to a website and you'll see them on ESPN or CNN or wherever you happen to go after you visit some vendor. Pre-targeting is pretty cool, though. So for those who want to do account-based marketing, we have a a target list of accounts that you want to get in front of, but they've never heard of you or been to your site. These days, there's so much information available that's been collected in these so-called Uber cookies that you can give these companies lists of accounts and titles in those accounts, and they will show ads to those people in a similar way that retargeting works in in the remnant space on a lot of these sites. But they'll show them before anyone's ever spoken to them before they come into your site. So when you do have a a sales development rep or SDR call them, hopefully they've got some familiarity. They're like, oh, I think I've heard of you guys before. I can't figure – I don't know why. 
that's 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 the thinking. So that that's pretty neat. So that's really, I think, the result of the state of the internet and the state of advertising that there's so much data available now to purchase to target these folks. So we're, I think we're going to give that a try this year and see how that works. Yeah, Hotjar, I'm familiar with. There's also another one, uh, Glassbox Digital. We had uh, we had their VP of marketing on the podcast not too long ago, hmm. out of, out of uh, I want to say out of London. But that being able to see the way that users are interacting with your site, it's a phenomenal CX yeah. tool. I, I spent yeah. the last ten years in the digital agency space working with companies like Verizon and the Minnesota Vikings, helping them with their their totality of experience, not just digital but also. The, the physical and that tool is it's amazing it's amazing what you can learn from watching some of those playbacks yeah we should do it more often i think we, we're probably just scratching the surface of what we're doing excellent so okay so pre-targeting sounds like i mean that's that's pretty new i mean i've heard of it but i'll be honest i haven't, I haven't dove into it yet but so let's fast forward and say if you looked out into the future um you had a crystal ball what are some of the trends you know you see impacting that dynamic between sales and marketing in the future I think we're going to be able to get really, really good at customer targeting, audience targeting. With what I just mentioned being the beginning, I think that in you know maybe just a couple of years, we'll be able to create a list of desired accounts and directly market to those people in a really effective way. And maybe instead of just knowing things like title and company, you can tie together. There's a product called Bambora, if you've heard of that, which keeps track of what you've been looking at. So it's so-called buyer intent. So you can figure out, all right, here's a guy at this company with this title. He's been looking around to buy this kind of product, right? And I'm going to give him just what he wants. And maybe that'll be combined with really hyper-targeted content. So I think that's really cool. If we can, It's a lot of work, but being able to really specifically target the right person, the right company, the right time with the right content I think is not too far in the future. Excellent. Excellent. So let's, let's pivot a little bit here and talk about uh, Imperva specifically, kind of take the theory we've been talking about and bring it into you know, practicality. So can you help our audience understand, you know, how your sales and marketing team is currently structured, you know, ratio of marketers to sales reps or different kinds of sales reps. We talked about, you know, capacity planning for your leads. How yeah. do you guys structure those teams and the, and the, you know, the workforce to make sure you can support all that? Sure. So we have sales development reps, SDRs. This is on the sales team. Uh, they work for sales. We have a pretty large inside sales team because we have a, uh, a product that sells well in the mid-market. And so they handle the mid-market accounts. And then we have a few hundred field uh, account executives that, that work you know, in-country, in the field, and uh, they handle some of our larger accounts, the enterprise accounts. So that's how we're structured. And Roughly speaking, we probably have over 10x the number of salespeople as marketers. So, you know, my team here is about, I think I said 32 people. I think that's right. And we have probably three to 400, if you count up all the reps and the SEs that support them in the field. Okay. All right. Interesting ratio there. Do you find that to be effective or is it, I mean, I know a lot of marketing execs are, always feel like they're kind of two or three head count behind where they'd like to be. <laughs> does that, does that feel like a good ratio and effective for, you know, for your goals? Yeah. So, so two things, first of all, uh, on the sales side, uh, we, and, and mostly the sales leaders, but you know, we've had to do some work as a company figuring out exactly who does what, what's the cutoff of the mid market, what do the enterprise reps handle who handles certain named accounts. Uh, we've had to have, I didn't mention this, but a small overlay team for one of our product lines to help the guys in the field get up to speed on one of these newer products. So I think for the most part, it's 
it's there. We've had some fighting in the field we've had to deal with over the years, but I think we're for the most part there. And yeah, I, I could use, I have a, I have a good sized team. I, you know, I think for us, you know, 32 people feels about right, but there's, you know, one or two areas that are light and we're just starting to think about planning for next year. And I've had my team start thinking about lists of who they need. And I've asked them to, to put them into three categories. One is urgent, burning need, lack of this person is causing a drain on the whole team and bringing the team down. So those are the people we're going to hire first. The second is growth. So people we can hire that we can say if we had this person, we'd be able to do something that would really grow things. So another person on the demand team or on the channel team, whatever it might be. And the third is you know, nice to have, which people I know don't like the name of that category. But <laughs> I think that having that discipline in structuring your hires really forces an honest conversation, not like, you know, everyone comes in with one to two hires for their team. And before you know, between my eight direct reports, we have 16 people, right, which would you know, add almost 50 percent to the team, which is not going to happen. So that that's how we're structuring the hiring. I think we've, you know, ballparking it. I think we've got one to two urgent burning need people and one to two growth opportunities for next year is my best guess. Okay. And, and right now, uh, I mean, I know you guys probably started planning for next year, but what, what is your top business issue or strategic business objective that you're focused on? I think right now it is making sure every rep can sell all of our products. So I uh, will get to this in a bit, but you know, I was acquired into Imperva and that brought in a new product line. And what we're seeing is, you know, reps that have been here for a long time aren't selling this newer product, which is reducing our overall effectiveness as a company in the field. So making sure that the demand is there, but equally importantly, the enablement for our people and for our channel partners so that we've got people who are fully armed to go out and sell our full portfolio. I think we're leaving a lot of money on the table. And I mean that literally because I think there are accounts of ours out there that aren't talking to us about products that they're maybe speaking to a competitor about. So that's my that's my number one, because as everyone here probably knows, it's much easier to sell to an existing customer than a net new customer. To <laughs> yeah. eat, right. Without and, a doubt. And, and yet we're doing that well in some areas, but not across the board, across the world. OK. And are there specific problems in terms of you know getting all of the salespeople together to get them up to speed on the total product portfolio or other problems that maybe are internal that are keeping you from resolving that issue? Mm, it's a combination of things. First of all, old habits die hard. <laughs> reps, reps hitting their quota with the older products and the newer products, you know, um, require them to change the way they do things, quite frankly. And not everyone wants to do that. We've had to make some adjustments to the quota plan. So people get, you know, credit uh, for, in this case, a subscription product. And, you know, that's part of our problem, too, is generally speaking, perpetually licensed software products uh, cost more money. So the reps get more quota relief. However, for the business, a multi-year subscription can be more profitable in the long run. And so balancing the corporate goals of deferred revenue from subscription and the reps goals of bigger numbers to retire my quota faster that tension is, I think, the biggest issue we've got. So showing the reps how to do big subscription deals, enabling them, training them, showing them, um, having a few years of history now to point back to to say, look at this account, look at that account, look how big that was initially, look how much it's grown. 
over the years by going back into that account and upselling. So that's really the issue. It's behavior. It's having examples. Even if we had a training session, the reps wouldn't always believe it if they didn't see <laughs> a giant deal at, I'm going to pick a random company, Barclays Bank or you know Universal Music Group or whatever, and to say, look, these are big deals. You can do it too. Yeah, sales reps, uh, and I, you know, I probably fall into this category too. Sales reps are inherently skeptical. Mm-hmm. They get comfortable with what they're doing. They think it's working, and and shaking them or educating them or evolving them becomes a bit of a challenge, right? Without a doubt. So you mentioned the acquisition you were at Encapsula, and uh, Imperva acquired them. I'm curious if, from an acquisition standpoint, you know, you're at Encapsula, you've got your marketing engine running, you're feeling good about it. The acquisition happens. Now you've got more products, more people, dynamics change a little bit. I'm kind of curious how that uh, acquisition affected, you know, maybe the way you were approaching marketing or did it, did it inspire you to, you know, seize opportunity to implement new changes or new approaches? So the way it worked was we were left to run autonomously for a couple years after the acquisition. I think that was a very smart move by our CEO. I've actually been part of a few different acquisitions, and I've noticed this more modern trend where they let the group that they acquire keep running and keep growing and not really wanting to mess it up right, by corporatizing it, so to speak. So that was a very smart decision, and that worked really well for us. And then I, I didn't mention this earlier, but I actually moved from you know running marketing for that product line to taking over all of marketing last year. So I, I moved into this, this role as head of marketing for the whole company. When I came into the company, what I was most excited about was all of these account executives out in the field, you know, 100 guys and women around the globe who were in speaking to some of the largest accounts in the world and being able to enable them to sell the subscription product. And we talked about the challenges there. And despite not all the reps doing it right away, we had really smart, talented sales reps who could who could walk us into, you know, fill in your favorite large bank, right. large CPG, insurance company, what have you. So that's what excited me was having the go to market reach that we didn't have as a small organization. Excellent. Okay. So let's change direction a little bit here. Um, towards the end of each interview, we ask all of our guests two standard questions, right? And the first one is as a, as a VP of marketing for a you know sizable organization that makes you, I mean, just to put it bluntly, a target for a lot of salespeople, yep. right? Yep. And so I'm curious, um, from your perspective, you know, a lot of people out there talk about prospecting. You're, you're, we've been talking about demand gen. What is it that gets your attention or, uh, captures uh, you know, your eyes so that you would be willing to engage with someone who wanted to approach you to, to solve some of your problems. So I get between 10 and 20 emails a day and <laughs> one to three voicemails a day from SDRs or salespeople trying to sell me some marketing technology or a list or a trade show, what have you. And I have to say, this is one of my pet peeves. I wrote a blog post a little while back called the top dumbest emails I've gotten from SDRs <laughs> this year because some of them are really stupid. And I don't care if your CEO is in town this week. You know, I don't even know who you are. Why, why would I want to meet them? Right. Just as an example of one that I get quite a bit. So, but to answer your question, the, the ones I do reply to, uh, typically they're emails. Uh, I generally don't answer my desk phone because the people that know me have my mobile number. Right. So s- give me something of value something specific, a benchmark, a study, something my competition is up to. Those are the ones that get my attention because you're bringing me value. And it's not that hard to do. If you're selling some great marketing technology, you've probably got a relevant case study or maybe you've done a study 
or something, that's the kind of stuff that I typically, at least I'll read it. Right. And, you know, if it's really good, I'll probably get back to you. Excellent. Okay. Um, so last question, we call it our acceleration insight. If there was one thing uh, that you could tell sales, marketing, professional services people, one piece of advice that you would be known for that you believe would help them hit their targets or beat their numbers, what would it be and why? Walk in the shoes of your customer. So we did an exercise at my previous company that I'm going to do here, which is called Be the Buyer Day. So drop everything and pretend like you're, you're a buyer trying to buy your piece of software or whatever it is that you sell. And the way we do this is we divide up into teams and uh, each team is assigned to a vendor. So your own company is one vendor and two or three of your competitors are the other vendors. And act like you're a client researching your product. So go to the website, go to the blog, fill out the form to download the ebook, call the sales number, all those kinds of things. And it's amazing what you'll find. You'll find typically how broken things are in your own company. Oh, and, and speak to, you know, be honest about it, be upfront, but speak to one of your, if you can, uh, SDRs or inside salespeople on the phone. And you'll be amazing what you find, what you hear. Uh, it's really, it's really eye-opening. You'll find that if you're better or worse than your competition, you'll find areas for improvement. You'll find ideas you can steal from your competitors. But being the buyer, acting, I think we forget about it uh, all too often, even though it's our job. Again, going back to the really obvious things. But if you just act like a buyer, you'll find so many things you can improve and make that experience so much better for your customers. That's really going to help your marketing. That, that's a great twist. I, you know, I hear a lot of marketing and, and sales execs talk about buyer journeys or buyer personas. I, I like this a lot better because you're actually experiencing it. You're not just trying to map it out, but you're actually yep. walking in those shoes. And, yep. uh, and you're right. It's amazing what you will find out about yourself and your competitors uh, when they go through that. Although I think sometimes the honesty <laughs> portion, like owning that, uh, oh, crap, we could have done this better. Uh, that depending on who's who found it, if that was the person who put out that piece of content or, or that web design, that might be a little bit challenging. But that yeah. level of integrity is, I think, is important. I, I like to run my team with the mindset of we can all improve. Right. And if we find something that somebody did, you know, to point fingers, everyone knows who did it. But we also give out awards to make it kind of fun. But look, look, even some of the stuff I've done, I know I can do better. So if you have that mindset that we're not here to embarrass people. Uh, although we've heard some really bad things from some of our salespeople, and they, they, they need to get better trained. Right. But I, I think if you go into it with that mindset, knowing that you're going to find stuff, it's it's okay. Excellent, excellent, Tim. This has been great. So I, I really appreciate it. If somebody wanted to get a copy of the Professional Marketer, Marketer, best place to pick it up? Best place is Amazon. Okay. Just go to Amazon and type in The Professional Marketer or Tim Matthews and you'll find it. All right. We'll put a link to that in the show notes for everybody. And if a listener is interested in talking more about the topics we touched on today, um, what's the best way to get in contact with you? You can read all of my ramblings on my blog. It's uh, <laughs> Matthews with two Ts, MatthewsOnMarketing.com. And you can find me on LinkedIn uh, and Twitter is at Tim Matthews SV as in Silicon Valley. Uh, you can find me there too. All right. Excellent. Tim, I can't thank you enough for the time today. It's been great having you on the show. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you. All right, everyone. That does it for this episode. Please check us out at b2brevexec.com. Share the episode with friends, families, coworkers, and I'm not shameless enough to say, please write us a review on iTunes. Or if you have an idea for a guest, someone you'd like us to interview, please shoot in my direction. Until next time, we at Value Prime Solutions wish you all nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. 
To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.